Hi, I'm Larry Korn. Welcome to the Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Today on the show, I'm excited to bring to you an interview with Larry Korn. Larry Korn has done a lot of things, but is is most well known for translating The One Straw Revolution by Masanobu Fukuoka. And I listened to that book, last year as an audiobook and that has really impacted me really changed my life so we're going to get into uh, Larry's story of how he came to be on Masanobu Fukuoka's farm but what i really love about what he talks about and what Masanobu Fukuoka really uh, sort of describes is a connection to nature and he's defined it in natural farming. But connection to nature, similar to what a lot of the indigenous peoples from around the world uh, have described. Now, I recently listened to an audio book called The Girl Who Sang to the Buffalo. And this is a story... Uh, it's a teaching story, so it's in the style of Native American storytelling, which has you know a meaning. It has something to it. And what I got from this, because it's about the Lakota people, is that they they learn lessons from every animal, from all the plants. Everything speaks to them because they sit and they listen. So in this interview, we. Uh, Larry and I talk about um, natural farming and his story uh, and something that I really got out of this interview was the idea that how we have lost our connection to nature, realizing um, or losing that realization that we are part of nature, that we are nature. And we start to think that we are superior to other species And we really cut ourselves out from that understanding of what plants and animals are saying. And this is a journey that I've been on for the last year or so now of of, uh, being transformed by natural farming and being transformed by what Indigenous peoples can teach us through their stories through their sayings and we forgot, you know, we've forgotten that we are connected to everything. This is, you know, impacting me on a whole new level 
not, you know, the probiotic life is about healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy people, ecological systems. But my journey has really been, wow, we are actually connected on, on levels that we can't even imagine or comprehend or measure. But the point of this interview really is that uh, we can live in nature. We can trust that Mother Nature will provide everything we need without understanding. And one thing that I love, uh, what Masanobu Fukuoka says, and Larry reiterates it in this interview, is that people can never understand nature. But there's no need to understand But what we do need to do is to be grateful. We need to walk in humility and gratitude. And so this is sort of the journey that this episode takes. And this is really exemplifies the journey that I've been on for the last year or so. And it's it's changed me and it's wrecked me at times of, of living in the suburbs, living the way that I do in a Western culture with my wife and my kids but having that deep desire to get back to the land, live off the land, live in tune, in harmony with nature. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Larry Korn and I hope that you get impacted by it, that you feel a shift or feel something awakening in you to be connected, not just to the probiotic life and to gut health, but something deeper, something more meaningful for you. So without further ado, here is the interview with Larry Korn. Our guest today is a permaculture teacher, author and consultant, but maybe most well known for the work he's done spreading the word of natural farming. He was a student of Masanobu Fukuoka and helped translate and edit the English version of the One Straw Revolution. Welcome to the show, Larry Korn. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And you're based in Oregon, is that right? That's correct, which is on the west coast of the United States, just north of California. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll talk about uh, the One Straw Revolution and Masanobu Fukuoka, and natural farming. But really, Larry, I would love to hear from you a bit about your story, about what actually drew you to natural farming. Take us back to, um, as you grew up, what sort of things influenced you to really uh, get you to a place that drew you eventually over to Japan to learn from Masanobu Fukuoka? Well, just the fact that I'm talking about natural farming and Asian spirituality is like the furthest thing from from what I intended or expected to be doing. When I, I grew up in Los Angeles, I'm a city boy, never had a vegetable garden, barely went camping, and uh, but I was always interested in Asia. So when I went to college at Berkeley, I did Asian studies, and when I graduated, I just decided to travel to... Asia to see what it was like there. I was 23 years old and I had very little money. I had no itinerary and no contacts, well, almost no contacts over there, but I just traveled for adventure. And I took a ship that was like a passenger ship 
that uh, uh, the first stop was Yokohama. I hadn't intended to stay in Japan for very long, but I met this uh, very nice Japanese woman on the on the ship, and we ended up traveling together. And the next thing I knew, I'd spent two years in Japan. Wow. Okay. So it was really the yeah. the ladies that kept you in Japan. Well, she she got the ball rolling. Okay. Um, but so we traveled, and I came to um, Kyoto after about three or four months, and I met a community of of um, commune people, the back to the land people, who were um, friendly with and in contact with the back to the land people in the United States and in Europe at the time. This is 1970, mm, by the way. Okay. So it's you know it's right during that time, and uh, they invited me to come and visit their communes, and I spent most of the time hitchhiking from one commune to the next. And these were places that were in the countryside. Uh, they were remote, very remote, but very beautiful places. And they were living, uh, they call themselves the Bazoku, the tribe. And they, they, their nickname was the Future Primitives. So they were living the way people in Japan were living hundreds of years ago. Ah, interesting. So these are not in the cities. They're living out in the countryside. Is that right? Completely in the countryside. Mm. There were a few contact like uh, cafes and so forth where you could go to the cafe and then you stay overnight and then they'll send you on, help you get to the next commune. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, that was the first time I'd ever been out in the, in completely immersed in nature. And I was vegetable gardening and farming for the very first time. And, uh, it was like, I was going, geez, how did I miss all of this? This is wonderful. Um, Mm. I loved working and I loved taking care of tools. And then I started cooking and then I started doing all of these things that I'd never done before. Um, and I just fell in love with plants and soil. And everything I've done in my life since then has involved plants and soil. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can, I can relate to that, uh, falling in love with plants and the soil and almost talking a different language to them, isn't it? Uh, that was actually the very first thing that happened with, was that one evening I was out walking in the fields and the, the soil spoke to me. Um, not exactly in words, but this feeling that was unmistakable, and uh, and then and then I could hear the plants chattering, and it was it was like it was everything was so alive all of a sudden, mm-hmm. and and so was I for the first time in that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. There's something that's that comes alive. I've had those moments where you know, like you said, the the plants and the the soil was talking to you. There was unmistakable, not in words. But you mentioned to me before that the soil in that experience had a deeper voice. It did. The soil was, the soil was, uh, there was a volcano on the island that was erupting. It's the most active volcano in Japan. Um, this is a tiny island. There's only about 50 people living on the island but it would erupt with giant clouds of ash. And if the ash blew over um, the village, you pretty much had to go inside because it was raining down little bits of glass, essentially. So the soil itself was almost pure sand. Mm. 
but they'd had sharp edges. So at night, when you walked out in the moonlight, it kind of sparkled. It was a very magical place. Wow. Yeah. So then, just as I was getting into it, my visa ran out. And I'd already extended it once, so I just continued south, and I went to um, Taiwan and Hong Kong and then the Philippines, and I spent six months in Micronesia doing some island hopping. And when I came back to the United States... Um, I went back to Berkeley, but this time I studied soil science and plant nutrition. After about two years, it turns out some of my good friends from Kyoto had moved to a farm in the mountains, and I was just graduating again, so I went back to Japan. The first trip was about two years, and I'd heard about Fukuoka at the uh, communes. Uh, he was well-respected, mainly as a spiritual teacher, um, but nobody had ever been to his farm, so they didn't know anything. They didn't know the details of his farming. So one day, I just decided to hitchhike down there and uh, see for myself what was going on. So it was just a bit of a visit. It was. The whole thing was an adventure. You know, I had no itinerary. I could do whatever I wanted. I had tons of time to kill. And, and, it was in, and then along the way, these, like, um, signposts appeared this suggesting that I go this way or I go that way. The first was a Japanese woman that I met on the ship. Mm. And then, and then there was, then there was the, the plants that tipped me off. And then, then going to Fukuoka-san's farm. And what happened there was that, um, he, let's see, when I first got there, I walked out to the, to the fields, to the rice fields at first, and it was easy to tell which ones were his because they weren't plowed. They, they were covered with mulch and white clover, and there were insects flying around all over, and the color of the plants was different. And, and while I was, it happened that Fukuoka was in the rice fields too. We came over and we talked, and, and uh, I, I, at the time, I, knew, I heard that he was accepting students to live in his 12-acre orchard mm. in these little mud-walled huts. And so I asked him if I could do that, and he said, sure. And so I pretty much dropped everything and ended up living on the farm for two years. And you got to learn from a master. Well, he's, he's not just any to Yeah, from a master. To me, he's a very special master, of mm. course, because... Mm. Because I think somebody asked me how long from the time that you met Fukuoka-san until the time that you realized that he was going to be your sensei, how long a period was that? I said, well, it was probably about 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It was so clear. And then I went up and I got along beautifully with the other people working there. And we just did farming, you know, the farm work. And uh, he would come up now and then and teaches about his philosophy and practical things like how to actually do the farming, how to use the tools, and uh, what, what his special technique involved, involved, because it really is a completely different approach to agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let's go into that a little bit because um, people may have heard of the One Straw Revolution or Do Nothing Farming, um, but from... Uh, what I got out of it is there's there's a little bit of a uh, cultural difference when you say something like do nothing farming. It's not doing nothing. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And and that was 
actually, for me, I've been trying to help people understand natural farming for more than 40 years now. And that is, see, I, I almost wish that he hadn't used that particular phrase because people think that what he means is no work. But if you have a two, two acres of rice and barley fields and 12 acres of orchard, you're going to be working mm. and you're going to be taking care of the plants and cutting the ground cover from time to time. You're going to have to replace huts. For example, you have to do some building. You have, have to, anyway, there's things to do. That's not what he had in mind. He was talking about unnecessary work. So his approach, you know, when he first came back, he was a plant pathologist. He was, she had a very, very high education in science. And he, um, when he was 25 years old, he was working as a customs inspector in Yokohama. And he had an experience where he said that he saw nature, you know, revealed without, without the uh, filter of the human intellect and without judgment. He just saw it just the way it was, and it fit together perfectly, and all elements were performing their best service. And, were, and when people uh, think that they can improve, they try things that they think can improve on nature, well... Uh, that is just not possible. And so then you get some side effects and then they deal with the side effects using the same thing, mm. the same method. And the, they, the problems get progressively worse and worse. So the method he realized was how about trying this and how about trying that? And when he went back to his farm, he took the opposite route. He said, what about not doing this? And what about not doing that? So he examined agriculture for at its most basic level, why are we plowing? Why are we flooding the rice fields? Why are we making compost? Why are we spraying for, for, for bugs? And, and why are we doing so much weeding? And he, he came to the conclusion that none of those things were necessary. Mm, so he, interesting. yeah. So um, the do-nothing part is that he relies on nature's unique ability to provide abundance all by itself. You know, when the early people, the indigenous people, needed to learn how to live in this place, they, they, they learned because they learned from the, from the plants and from the animals and from trying things and see, seeing how nature responded. But once we decided that we were um, superior to other species, we sort of cut ourselves off from that type of understanding. We could no longer speak to animals. You know, we couldn't get inf information in that way. And then for the first time, we, we took ourselves, we, we felt like we were no longer bounded by natural law and the way we figured out how to live was by using our intellect so so we we created a barrier and now we're analyzing things from the outside we're looking at nature instead of living inside and among the inside the natural world and among other species mm -hmm. that that's what really impacted me about um the, the, the writing uh, once to a revolution was 
Okay, it's like we've separated. And in a way, like, you know, was it written in 74 or translated in 74, was it? In, in, the Japanese version came out in 75. 75. And the English came out in 78 or 9. Okay. But, but it was like when reading it last year, I was like, wow, this is like prophetic in a way. Like what he's talking about back then is still very applicable and, and, the, and sort of like they're seeing in the future is so applicable of what's happening right now in history, in agriculture. Um, And to me, it just impacted me like, wow, okay. Like being connected back to nature, realizing that we are part of nature, realizing that we, there's no separation between uh, natural and spiritual. It's all, it's all connected. That's, that, that's just sort of the impression that I got from that. Well, the, um, what natural farming is really about is helping people get back to our our natural mind, our natural way of living. And he ref- and uh, the farming is just so his vision. In his vision, he had the idea of an appropriate way for people to live and get along with nature. And natural farming is a guide to help people get back to that place, the place where we were for tens of thousands of years when we were, you know, um, uh, still connected, when it's a true culture, when the culture was connected to nature. Mm. So anyway, getting back to the um, abundance thing, uh, the um, he didn't want to make decisions He didn't want to use his intellect to make decisions. What he wanted to do was help nature to get whole again so that it could fulfill its destiny, which is to provide the conditions that that foster life. And then, see, at first he he inherited the orchard was uh, eroded and there were very, there were some sickly citrus trees and a few other plants and a few weeds, scraggly stuff. And so natural farming is very difficult once the land has been damaged to that extent. It can't fulfill its destiny of providing abundance. So there's a kind of in most places because we've damaged most of the land that we want to farm in. Mm. So the first step is to rehabilitate the land so that nature can can, um, um, be whole again. So he started on a, you know, he saw that the things that needed to happen first were to um, improve the soil and uh, the condition of the soil and to get provide more diversity. And then grad, at first, when he tried to grow cabbages, for example, he got cabbage moth. So we had to spray them. We grew chrysanthemums to make pyrethrum, and he used a natural spray on them. But once there was diversity, enough diversity in the orchard, so that there were a balance of, of, of all the different insects, he didn't have any trouble with cabbage moths again. So, so that's one less thing that he had to do. Mm-hmm. Once he stopped plowing the soil and got, grew up, permanent ground cover of soil building plants, he didn't have to fertilize again. Once he realized that, that if he um, covered the soil with mulch, the, the rice fields with mulch 
and uh, a living ground cover that he didn't really have to flood the fields. And in fact, rice, it turns out, grows better in a field that hasn't been flooded. So, so then he didn't have to irrigate. So this is what he's talking about with do nothing. Mm. He didn't have to control insects. He didn't have to fertilize. He didn't have to flood the rice fields. If he grew trees that were not pruned from the beginning, he wouldn't have to prune. Didn't have to weed because the ground cover was in a nice balance with the weeds. So this is what he meant by, finally we're getting back to it. This is what he meant by do nothing farming. Mm -hmm. And by the time you uh, arrived on the farm, he had been doing that for quite a while. Is that right? Yes, he had been doing it for about 30 years. And uh, um, it was actually looking back now, knowing what I know now, because it's 40, is 40 years later, I didn't see the time when the orchard was all eroded and everything. But when I got there, it was at peak abundance and beauty and uh, production. Uh, it, he pretty much had worked it out so that the yields, his yields of rice and barley were equal to or better than his neighbors. And the neighbors ran the soil down, created pollution. They needed tractors, fossil fuels, chemicals. He didn't need any of those things. And yet he was still getting yields that were equal to the neighbors. So... One of the things that he set out to show when he left his, when he quit his job as a scientist and came back to the farm was that using this approach, um, uh, you, you, he proved that you didn't need the products of modern technology. And that's what he set out. And he'd done that. By the time I got there, his yields were great. And it was a commercial farm. He, he uh, shipped out 200,000 pounds of citrus every year. And um, he only had two. The rice and barley fields were largely a demonstration, just two acres or acre and a half. And uh, uh, because uh, farms in Japan are judged by their yield of rice. So he felt like he really had to produce a lot of rice to show, again, that, that he was on equal footing with the neighbors. Mm. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't have cared about the yields. He didn't really care that much about the yields up in the orchard. And a lot of the, you know, he grew a lot of, I'm rambling now a little bit, but he grew, he loved to grow trees from seed. Okay, now, trees from seed, 98% of them aren't going to be of commercial value. They'll be funny shape or the taste or whatever, but he did that for a couple of reasons. One of them was to maintain the genetic diversity in the orchard as a whole. Mm -hmm. Another one was he was entertaining himself because these, these fruits and these trees, he never knew what was going to come up. And when you walk through the orchard, I'm telling you, you, um, uh, you saw something every single day that you never saw before. Mm -hmm. which is not the case with the most orchards because it's so carefully planned and there's very little ground cover, if there's any at all. The trees are in rows. There's no, I mean, it's, it's pretty much not as interesting as walking out into a wild orchard, you know. And the third reason he grew um, 
uh, trees from seed is because sometimes because you didn't put them on, on dwarfing rootstock, they grew huge. So, um, so one time a fellow, I read this in an interview, a fellow did an interview with him and they were walking around the orchard and he said, Sensei, you know, your ladders are never going to be able to reach up. So you can harvest all of that fruit. And, and he said to him, um, what, you think I'm just growing food for human beings around here? <laughs> <laughs> it's a completely different mindset, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, if you're thinking about uh, uh, uninteresting, I just remember driving through California and seeing we, we were um, there when the, um, the almonds were in flower. And just mm-hmm. like miles and miles and miles of almonds in flower, um, it's yeah. it's just a completely different way of doing stuff. We're just th- throwing seeds out there and seeing what what's growing. What do you think is is um, something that really struck you in that time where you were living there? Sort of like a, a revelation or a, a even an instant where you where something clicked for you. Well, there were a number of them. But let me just, I'll mention one that's a philosophical one and one that's a, uh, uh, out in the fields. Um, he wanted, the sentence that he said, more, uh, that I remember him saying more than any other, people can never understand nature. So that, you know, but there's, but, and then he followed it often with, but there's no need to understand. And that, all of that, took a huge burden off my shoulders. Mm. I was thinking, gosh, we got it. Because I had just come from a couple of years of studying soil science, and it's all about figuring things out and using the intellect, and it's, it's almost painful. My head was aching trying to figure out the chemistry and the this and that. But there's no need to do any of that. It's just enjoy. Just enjoy being with the plants and out in nature, and you spend your day. It's very simple. There's no structure to natural farming. There's no special meditation. There's no required reading. It's just go out to the fields each day and, and provide the things that you need and in interacting with the plants um, and, the, uh, and the, the creatures and the soil, then you put yourself in a really nice position to have that breakthrough where you find your way back to nature. Mm. But it started for me when he said, you don't need to understand. You'll never be able to understand nature anyway, but that's okay. So, so that was one for me. The second one was his idea of design. And this, I think uh, there's probably a lot of listeners who are, who have uh, come in contact with permaculture. And permaculture is a design methodology. There's so many definitions of permaculture, but almost all of them have design, the word design in the very first sentence. And so one day he took us out to the orchard to a place where you could look, look out over this kind of vast area, you know, a big part of the orchard. You were overlooking this thing. And he said, you know, when I got here... I had no idea what to do. And so, but, but, so what I did was I took the seeds of many different plants, of trees and shrubs, flowers, vegetables, 
legumes, you know, herbaceous plants, comfrey and all of that, uh, buckwheat, alfalfa, you know, and I mixed them all together and I put them in clay balls, clay pellets, and I just tossed them out all over. And then, and then you look out at the place now. I mean, it's like a jungle, and it's beautiful, and it smells nice, and everything. It's, it's a little bit, seems chaotic, but what you're seeing is nature's design. He wanted to get the human intellect out of the process of designing. So he put the tools, which is in the form of seeds, out for nature, and he let nature decide what it wanted to do there. Mm. This is in the spaces between his uh, commercial citrus trees. Yeah, and, and this makes a lot of people uneasy because we want to somehow have control over the situation. And uh, that's something that's very hard for people in the modern culture to give up. Um, so what do you think is that, you know, like if we have to assume this um – not have to, but if if you want to natural do natural farming, then it sounds like you sort of uh, assume this um, um, lifestyle and philosophy of just letting nature do her thing, and then you're you're just there. What's sort of the breakdown between where we're at today in in modern culture in Western society and that? Oh my goodness! Well, we're opposite. Almost everything, it turns out, about natural farming is opposite of the direction that modern culture is going in. But, you know, one, one thing that I realized, and this is after many years, my understanding is still evolving too, but I realized that what he's talking about, his way of interacting with the, with, uh, with the world and uh, um, his... Uh, philosophy about it is it's almost identical to what indigenous people were doing all over the world mm. until just a few thousand years ago and this was you know so homo sapiens maybe i don't know just rough figures 220,000 years ago appeared in africa consciousness maybe 180,000 years ago come then the homo sapiens went out of africa they traveled to all over the world australia europe japan Siberia, and they found a place to settle. And they lived there for many, many, many generations. And by talking with the plants and the animals, and by trying things and seeing nature's response, they learned how to make their life more uh, uh, secure and more abundant for all species. And the, the overriding feeling was, thank you. Thank you. Here we are in this gorgeous place. And everything we need to live is literally growing on trees or just walking around among us, you know. Mm. And, and they were grateful for that. So I think that the elements that we're missing um, are, you know, humility, gratitude. You know, these are things that if you don't have these things, I don't, understand, I don't see how you can practice natural farming. Because it's a, because then what's implied is that nature somehow needs our help to know what to do, and we've already proven that when the more we do, the worse things get. Now that that I know is is 
people have trouble with that because we have a kind of a kind of a species arrogance that we that we think we know a lot more than we actually do. And I mean, well, I, maybe I'm going too far with this because I try to be tactful. But since you asked the question directly, what is the difference between the modern culture and where we're going? We're going to a place where we're about material things. Mm. Natural farming is not. We're about success and building huge civilizations. Natural farming is more, let's say, grassroots. You know, it's, um, there's very little ambition in natural farming, which is another thing that people say, well, that's to a lot of people. Getting ahead and being ambitious is, is what you do with, in life, and that's how you can judge how successful you are. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, I'm rambling. No, 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 that's good. I, I was really speaking to me right now, you know, uh, ever since I read the book, um, I've picked up on different things around the place. For example, um, I went on a, um, uh, an indigenous bushwalk, where there was an Aboriginal elder um, sharing with us about the land, uh, specifically in in um, Perth, Western Australia, um, the Wajak Noongar tribe, and how they related to the land and the stories and how the stories have intrinsic, um, like meaning and convey different ideas and their cultural things. And I was like, wow, this is like natural farming. And I've, I follow um, Korean natural farming, which is slightly different, but it's sort of uh, the ideas came from Japan, then went to Korea and sort of developed from there. But again, it's like, like you said, there's the, there's the roots of um, indigenous culture and, and the indigenous philosophies of being grateful and thankful and completely contrast to um, you know, hustling, being successful and all that sort of stuff. And that, you know, I've, that's sort of like my, um, the last six to 12 months has been like, wow, I'm like wrestling with that. How do I go forward from here with what you, but exactly what you've been talking about. Yeah. Well, um, the way I've applied it to my life is that I try not to direct my life. I try to like look for, you know, I, I, I do things and then listen for a response and kind of go that way. Mm. That's the way Sensei developed his farming system because he had no idea how to do it when he got back. Nobody had ever tried it before. So he did, for example, he knew he wanted to include a leguminous ground cover uh, in his soil building mix. So he grew 40 of them. And he saw that clearly the white clover and the vetch were the ones that, that were going were gonna to work for him. Mm. So he just went that way. He, he just didn't even, because the white clover is the only one that made a mat right below the surface, the root. So it was doubled as uh, weed control. You know, and vetch did fine in the winter when the clover was, was a little. So he just tried things and nature pointed out the direction to go. So I try to live that way too, and and signs come up uh, that that help me establish direction. 
Um, and it's like when I went to Japan, I had no itinerary. So when I got the opportunity right away to go and live with this uh, woman's grandparents for two months, or then to go off to the communes, I mean, if I had an itinerary that I was, had to be in Okinawa in a month, I would have missed out on all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so let, let's go um, from the time you were um, on his farm. Mm-hmm. Then, then you left there. What what sort of happened from there? Where where did you sort of where where did um, life lead you from there? Well, it, it okay. Well, the first thing it led me to coming back to the United States with the manuscript and needing to get the manuscript published. Mm. So I spent about three years on that, finding a publisher and then editing um, the book uh, so that it would be as effective and as readable in English as it was in Japanese, because for various reasons it it needed to get rearranged a little bit. Um, And then after that, I went through a period where I was a little lost. And and then uh, I went to work as a soil scientist for several years measuring soil erosion for the California Department of Forestry. And then I worked on plant nurseries, which was awesome. You know, just being around plants all day, but just as an employee. So I come in the morning at a certain time and then I leave and then I, my time is my own. Mm. But then, when I, then I got married and had a child right away. And so I had to up my livelihood a little bit. And so for the next... Uh, Almost 25 years, I worked as a landscape contractor, remodeling people's yards in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, Mm. while my daughter was growing up. So this is like a little side trip, a 25-year side trip where I just lived the life of a householder, you know, and I was putting in lawns and sprinkler systems and things like that. Um, Also, more interesting jobs than that, but I did do that kind of thing. And it's, it was just a nod to, I mean, I'm just acknowledging that um, when you live in a culture that is just so, like, has um, manicured the whole landscape through, through the economics and the politics and, the, and then the physical landscape itself, it's, it's, um, it's, it's works for the modern culture. So, so trying to practice natural farming or live a natural life or, you know, is, is very difficult. Mm. And even I was 25 years landscaping. My kid was in public school. My daughter, who's 28 years old now. So I did that. And then um, finally she grew up and uh, to where she went off to college about 11 or 12 years ago. So I immediately was tired of the city by then. And uh, so I moved up to this small town in Ashland where we have a vibrant community of organic farmers here in the southern Oregon, in the Rogue River Valley. Mm-hmm. And I'm just loving it here and being back in a more rural area. And now I can devote myself again to natural farming full time. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of come full circle. But it was, you know, I had my own journey. I had my drama too, you know. We, uh, we, uh, sometimes we l- learn lessons fast and sometimes we take a while to learn, uh, different lessons. Yeah. And I can, I can definitely understand that. 
Um, where, when in this journey did you decide to write the book, The One Straw Revolutionary? Well, that was after I'd moved back to Ashland. And I just felt, you know, my mother started, um, uh, well, she, towards the end of her life, she her, gradually lost her memory. And I was thinking, geez, I've got all of these stories. Well, for one thing, since I'd been trying to explain natural farming for so many years, and I kind of got the idea where people got stuck and where, where it was difficult for them, and then especially by comparing natural farming to indigenous agriculture and uh, tribal ways, then I, you know, people were responding better, especially Westerners. It was a way to explain natural farming in a way that Westerners seemed to understand a little better, a little easier. And I had all of these stories, stories about my time tripping around in the communes and, and how I developed from a city kid to someone who was completely competent on a Japanese farm. Mm. And, and then uh, um, what it was like to live on the farm. You know, these are stories, it's just like allowing people to look behind the curtain. You know, I mean, fans, it is book primarily for people who are interested in natural farming and you get to know Fukuoka-san as a, as a person. You also get to meet the other people I was farming with in the orchard and, and all of these stories have some kind of, I'm not just telling stories, these all have practical um, there's a reason I'm telling these particular stories. And then I traveled with him in the United States in 1979 when he came with his wife as well, Ayako-san. And then he came again in 1986, where, among other things, he attended the second international permaculture conference, and he met Bill Mollison there. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I planned his itinerary and took him around and translated for him. So, so there's, I wrote it, there's a nice, long, and I hope fun. I tried to make the book fun, and people say that it is fun to read. So, and then I compare natural farming to other forms of agriculture. And then uh, finally, how you can apply natural farming to your own life. So I didn't want these, see, I got a little scared when I saw my mom was losing her memory. And, and if that happened to me, then all those stories would be lost. Mm -hmm. So it took me <laughs> surprise. It took me longer than I thought. <laughs> I think that's the case for everybody, especially the first book. There Probably be my only book too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've heard some, uh, some, I haven't read it myself, but I've heard some, uh, great stuff about you know just being entertaining and having the lessons in there as well um, but then you helped uh, Masanobu Fukuoka write another book is that correct um, I edited the books he wrote them and then I um, made them um, readable in English okay and so he wrote the the second book he wrote uh, that was uh, more recently. Well, yes. I've worked on two of his four English language books. Um, One Star Revolution, and then another book called Sowing Seeds in the Desert, which is a book that he wrote in 1995 um, and then was revised a few times. But that has a lot to do. You know, once the One Star Revolution came out, he started getting invited to travel all over the world. And the first 
place was the United States, and he saw he was shocked to see the condition of California, that it was becoming a, we had turned the place into a desert. And then he went to Europe, and then to India and Africa. And so then the, the, he saw that the environmental crisis was much worse than he had imagined. That it's uh, everything people are doing is making the world more arid. And after that, he devoted himself to trying to apply natural farming to um, re-green or rehabilitate the, the human-caused deserts in the world. So, um, yeah, Sowing Seeds in the Desert talked a lot about his travels to Africa and India, as well as some other, um, uh, his philosophy. He can't, he just can't write anything without giving his philosophy railing against science Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, giving his opinions about this and that. So that's in there too. But he also wrote about India, Africa, and his travels in the United States. There's also two other English language books that I didn't work on. One is called The Natural Way of Farming. And this one is is the most practical of his books. And he goes into details about how his farming developed and the, the mistakes he made and then how he, he solved those and then how um, it developed. And he gives specific crop rotations to go from... Um, conventional farming or organic farming to natural farming. So if you want to practice natural farming on your own land, that's a very good one to take a look at, Mm. the natural way of farming. And then there's another one called The Road Back to Nature, which is also about primarily about his travels to the United... It's the only time that I can remember him writing about his trip to Europe and also the United States and... uh, so, I don't know. They're all, I like them all because I found, I always find nuggets that I've never found before in those books. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll definitely put the links up to those books. Um, I find it interesting um, with the natural farming from what I understand in uh, Japan and the Korean natural farming, which is, I think, fairly similar um, but it's it's on a small scale, isn't it? It's not it's not like a large scale agriculture. Um, but I, I've see people in in the states and around the world using these techniques on market gardens. Have you have you had much experience with the sort of um, the, the market gardens um, and helping people develop those? Yeah, the market gardens uh, for natural farming, um, perennial. Crops, especially tree crops, it's ideally suited for that. Mm. Um, If you want to grow vegetables commercially, it's not really the best use of natural farming. It's mostly the the way that he grew vegetables by scattering the seeds of the vegetables in the spaces between the orchard trees Mm. um, so that there were vegetables pretty much growing everywhere. It's really hard to imagine how you could make that kind of system into a market garden. Then you want to go over right away. People want to like plow and put down plastic and grow plants in rows. And then you're talking about organic agriculture mm-hmm. where, you know, it's different. And actually, the, I consider the Korean natural farming to be a form of organic agriculture and not related to Fukuoka's natural farming at all. Okay, so um, the philosophies are different there, is it? Well, yes, because um, f- f- 
the, the, as I understand it, the Korean natural farming is is based on using these preparations that that mm-hmm. that Im, improve the soil by improving the situation of microorganisms. Well, this this kind of reminds me of control, that it's something we're going to help nature somehow. We're going to help nature and help help it to produce more. So and Fukuoka was not, that just came with the system. What he did was, is if he had he stopped plowing, and then he had a, a, a soil building ground cover all the time. He cut it back once a year, and he didn't even have to think about the microorganism situation of microorganisms because the soil and the plant roots and the and the little worms and the, and the uh, nematodes and all those, the life in the soil created the optimum conditions over time. So he, did, he wasn't into any kind of additives at all. Mm. Um, compost tea, spraying kelp on the leaves and stuff. Maybe at the very beginning, when nature has trouble like recovering, from what's been done, but then once you get the ball rolling and nature can take over, then he just took a step back. Now, maybe that's an idea in the Korean natural farming, too, is that once you get to a certain point, you stop doing it. But I've never heard that. No, I haven't heard that either. Mm. Yeah. So, so anyway, so that's the, so using additives and trying to making compost, which is kind of the basis of, because the soil is plowed, you know, organic farming originally came, it's essentially the, the, the farming of Korea, China, and Japan. It was brought over and made popular by J.I. Rodale and Rodale Press. Mm. And, and then there were people all over the world that were practicing that kind of thing. It's, the whole thing is based on making compost. Okay. Fukuoka didn't didn't um, didn't think that was necessary again because if you got the permanent ground cover, the roots and the microorganisms are making compost all the time right in the soil. You don't have to go through the work to gather up all the stuff and put it together and keep it wet and turn it and turn it. The only advantage that he saw for that was that it goes faster. So to him, that was the same mentality that was like wanting to drive in a fast car instead of walking or riding a bicycle. In the long run, walking in a bicycle is closer to the earth. It doesn't take, I mean, it's, uh, well, in the end, it works out better because nature can proceed on nature's time. It's not getting hyped up by a, artificial technique plus how are you going to move all that stuff the compo- the compost onto a 200 acre farm mm-hmm. it's true natural farming is a relatively small property it's best suited for that so um, if to to uh, get natural farming going on a significant scale it seems that we're going to have to have a kind of a redistribution of population back to the land. So people will live on relatively small plots. And then if, uh, if a number of 
households, natural farming households, get together and form a community where they kind of share resources. Um, It's much, much easier for one person to go out and practice natural farming the way he did. It's, It's very hard. It's easier if you do it in a community, a number of people at once. Mm-hmm. So o- over the years, um, you know, you've said that you're still learning things or still discovering things about natural farming. What would you say now um, in your life, sort of uh, what is some wisdom that you would want to share with us about that sort of the, looking back and seeing the wisdom and the, seeing the development um, of you as a as a quote-unquote natural farmer, even though you weren't farming for a while, yeah. what, what sort of wisdom would you want to share from looking back over the years? Well, I don't know if it's wisdom or not, but I, I think uh, it, it's nice if you can relax a little bit and, and, and accept things that come to you without grasping. You know, when you reach out and try to hold, something, hold on to something, then you can never quite catch it. But if you just are relaxed. I won't say passive. I'll say just, um, just you're waiting and then things come to you. Uh, again, it's difficult to, to, you know, we, we want to do things and, and not doing, I don't mean that you're not working and you're not out there doing the things you need to live. I'm talking about it kind of an emotional space and Mm -hmm. things will come to you. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and the other thing, especially I saw this when I was teaching permaculture classes, but especially with young people, is that this this is I don't know this is the young people brought with them a lot of guilt about what human beings have done to the planet, and certainly I guess, but uh, this has been going on for and 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 they're ashamed of that. They're ashamed of themselves. They're ashamed of their these species. Um, we, I think we need to get over that by f- fixing it, by fixing ourselves. Um, we didn't cause this. This has been going on for a long time, you know, um, and, uh, but we're the ones that can change it. So it's the only thing really we have control over is our personal life and understanding of ourselves. So mm-hmm. I think going a little bit easier on ourselves is, is uh, helpful. It's helpful. And if you do something that makes you happy, if you can find something that makes you happy, then you, among other things, you'll be much more effective in making um, important changes in the world. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I, I think, good wisdom to live by. The last couple of years, I've uh, our family's gone through some stuff with my, uh, in- I was a landscaper and then I, I had an injury and then sort of everything fell apart and I needed to, uh, well, I, I had an opportunity to figure out what, what actually mattered to me and, and the podcast is part of that. Um, so so I, I, I resonate with what you're saying there, Larry, and I, and I appreciate that. I wanted to ask you, about permaculture because you do teach permaculture and sort of the differences between permaculture and, uh, and natural farming. Um, okay. Permaculture 
uh, well, to start with, you, you go out and observe nature, right? And take notes and you, you see the patterns that are there and, you know, you to do close observation. And then you uh, get together a lot of information about the soil, maybe get a soil test, you check the water situation, you talk to the neighbors, you look around to see what's growing in other places, you pile up that information, and then you do the building information, and pretty soon you got your desk piled up with information, and then you take that and you make a design following the, the principles. Well, the ethics, of course, but then doing the principles. So the person creating the design is the permaculture designer. And it's basically a process where they observe nature and then put it through their intellect and out comes the design. Natural farming, it's nature does the design directly. And the, the, um, I can see people can, can evolve in permaculture and it could be a path to find your way to a less intrusive form. But, um, but the very beginning, just observing nature, already there's an observer and there's something that's being observed. So the separation of people and nature is built in from the very first step. Mm. You know, with natural farming, there's this one little paragraph in the natural way of farming where he goes, this is his observation, his method of observation he says well if you think you ever if you want to know what's going on with the rice plants you just go out there and take a look and you can pretty much get an idea of, of what's going on now if it's a little confusing then you can ask the rice plant and then if you still don't know you just become the rice plant and then it'll be obvious <laughs> Hey, this is the kind of things that indigenous people could do. Mm. And people who before we got separated and started relying on our intellect, then um, we lost touch with the ability to become a plant like that or a, um, you know, a deer or something. Um, so so the, the food, Fukuoka's orchard and the food forest that, that's a signature design of permaculture they look a lot alike but the way that the approach is is nearly opposite because one is intellect based and the other is strictly intuitive you feel it and you don't really need to back it up with scientific studies in fact the scientific studies often throw you off because you make a mistake or it's not really a a, uh, a true representation of reality where you take isolate variables and you take all of these different elements, you break nature down into different elements, and then you study them, and then you try to put them back together. This is not how reality works. It's a continuous. Reminds me of the chicken, you know, the permaculture chicken? Mm -hmm. About the... the, the, the uh, what inputs does it need and what's it giving others? And you're supposed to analyze each element by, on that basis. What does it need and what is it giving? And then you draw the lines that make the connections. This is very much like how science works. So basically, the point is that 
natural farming is more related to indigenous understanding and permaculture is more related to modern culture. Mm. That's very interesting, especially with the um, permaculture now becoming uh, like accredited and that whole that whole system of, of almost, well, you know, they want to get it in the universities so that they're becoming more like that system. Well, thank you. I mean, no, thank you for mentioning that. Don't get me started on that. Because <laughs> what do we want to go to the universities and the, and the government for? Because before you know it, we're going to be acting just like them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm completely grassroots person, you know, and that's why there's no institute of natural farming. Is we don't give out certificate. I don't give out certificates when I teach a class. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't I don't know. It's 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 a little it's a li- little different. Actually, the last class that I taught at the end, we just wanted to try it. We did give out certificates, but it was a certificate. It was just an acknowledgement, this is a souvenir that you were at the class and, and then you look at it and say, what a good time we had together. Mm, mm-hmm. And then, so uh, one person said, said, I'm so proud of this because to me it it's, s- signifies and certifies that I know nothing. <laughs> Everybody laughed, you know. Yep. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Well, Larry, we've already gone through an hour already. It's been... Uh, um feel like I have a lot more to ask you, but I appreciate your time. And, you know, this this podcast is called The Probiotic Life or Life. Um, mm-hmm. what, what's, uh, what, what does that mean to you, probiotic life? Or what's one thing that you would like to leave us with today on The Probiotic Life? Oh, on The Probiotic Life? Well, um, the, <clears throat> you know, I studied soil science. I knew nothing about soils when I started soil science. And they talk, and then you learn about how soils develop over time and that there's mineral and there's a soil solution, the water going, going around, and then the microorganisms and the fungi. And then, and then gradually they're adding element by element until you get, to, and then the, the, the uh, hyphae are going into the roots and they're going in miles and miles and there's, there's, everything's interacting and living inside each other. And then finally, I got to the point where there's no way that you can understand soil with uh, using the intellect. It's too limited. Mm. You just got to feel it. You got to become the soil. And when I did that for the first time, it was the most wonderful feeling of my life to become the soil. And it's teeming with life. They need uh, of all sorts. And um, they're in competition with each other, and yet they support each other. It's a beautiful thing, the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And for me, I see it most clearly in the soil. And of course, the microorganisms is the life of the soil, uh, well, along with the, the worms and the creatures and, and the nematodes and all of that. But it, it's a very, very beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I definitely resonate with that. And I, I love getting in the soil. I know a lot of our listeners do too. So, uh, Larry, thank you very much for your time. 
Uh, would you just mind giving us a little bit of a direction? Where can we find you, uh, your website, uh, online, and uh, where can we buy your book from? Okay, I maintain a website for Fukuoka-san, and it's onestrawrevolution.net. And that has interviews, it has a lot of photos, it has um, uh, videos, YouTubes. It's, it's a nice site. I think you'll enjoy it. There's a lot there. Um, my email address, L, letter L, letter D, K-O-R-N, at gmail.com. And the book is pretty much available uh, through all the usual channels. Um, I like to buy books from my local bookseller. Um, but I understand that it's uh, if you're living far out and maybe in Australia, I don't know if bookstores would carry it there. So I don't know, a book depository or Amazon, they'll have it. Mm-hmm. They do have it. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put the links to uh, everything you mentioned uh, up there on the show notes. So, uh, Larry, thank you very much for coming on The Probiotic Life and sharing your wisdom with us. It's been my pleasure. Cheers. I really like what Larry said, become the soil. You know, I've been inspired to listen with my heart to the soil, to the plants, to the animals, to nature, with humility to learn. And so I hope that you have been inspired by what Larry was talking about today and would love to hear how you are working out a probiotic life. What's it look like for you? What does it look like to connect to nature for you? So reach out to us. Always love to hear from you. As always, we'll have the links in the show notes. And may the beneficial microbes be with you. Until next time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life. 